history, there's no reason for you to have to go through it and learn the same thing the way I learned it. Because if you learn it now, you can avoid the headaches and the bumps that I got. So Adolfo, just give me my clicker for me, please. And uh, Eddie Berto, I need you to move this a lot further. Uh, I need Davi, Eddie Berto, Jared, uh, you with Lilani, and Ellie, all to listen to Adolfo today after break and learn how to get this stage situated when a guest speaker comes. It needs to be done in excellence, and it needs to be done right away. Amen? I said amen. When a guest speaker comes, it needs to be done right away, and it needs to be done in excellence. No fiddle-diddling around. You guys need to know how to prepare the way for a guest speaker. And if you don't know how to treat the pastor of the house right, how are you going to treat somebody else right? Okay? When guest speakers come, they're expecting certain things to be there for them. They're expecting them a platform to put their Bible on. They're expecting something for their water. They're expecting space to walk around. You have to do that, and you have to do it quickly, okay? I expect better from you guys. Somebody say, help us, Jesus. Amen. So what I want to talk to you today is about 12 lessons learned in 12 years of pastoring. 12 lessons learned in 12 years of ministry. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for today, Lord. I pray that you will just clear our hearts and our minds and help us to focus on your word for us today. That, God, you will teach us how to be obedient. That, God, we will hear what you're saying to us. Lord, you've given me examples to share with the young ministers today, God, that they are able to hear these messages, uh, these lessons, God, and to, to avoid the heartache and the way that I had to learn them, God. I just pray for wisdom. God, wisdom. Wisdom says I don't have to make the same mistake twice. God, understanding says I understand what I should do and know how to do it so I don't do the wrong thing. And God, I pray for wisdom and understanding and knowledge. God, knowledge is knowing what to do at the right time. So, God, I pray for wisdom, knowledge, understanding to come today, God, in just such a, a practical way, such a way that gives you glory, Father God. And I pray that no man would look unto me as anything other than a servant of yours, Father God. But these examples, God, let them serve, God, as lessons of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding so that these that are here today do not have to go through the same heartache and headache and bumps that I had to go through. God, I pray for prosperous ministries, for wise ministers, God, for them to have more of an understanding than I ever had going into ministry, that, God, they'll avoid a lot of the pitfalls that I went into in ministry, that they, God, will walk higher in a higher calling, Father God, than I did in my first 12 years of ministry. We pray, Father God, that my uh, ceiling, Father God, where I have reached thus far, God, would be their floor where they start, so that, Father God, we can continue to build your kingdom, Father, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So I want to just show you a picture right here. Some of you were uh, not able to see it Sunday, but I just want to see it. Here's me uh, starting off in ministry, uh, you know, 2022 years old. Uh, show the guys uh, on the cohort that picture. And uh, here I am uh, doing Salvador and Jessica's wedding just in the fall of 2009. I've been serving the Lord as a Christian for over 14 years. But specifically in pastoring, it's been 12 years, and I just enjoy ministry. I never thought, let me just say this, I, I never thought that I was ever going to be a pastor. I never thought I was going to be a pastor. Everybody look up at me. 
This is for you guys today. I never thought I would be a pastor. I thought I would be an evangelist. I thought I would travel around and plant churches. I never thought I would be a pastor. There's an example of how I see pastors in my life. This pastor that uh, we went to just for a short season, Assembly of God Church. He was a gentle man. He was a kind man. He was a patient man. He was an older man. I looked at him and I said, I will never be that. I will never be a kind, older, gentle, patient man. I mean, that's just not who I was. I just never saw myself being a pastor. But one day, um, we were in between uh, uh, first year and second year, and Chancellor No came up to me, and he said, uh, this is when I was at SUM Bible College, and he said, I want you and Juan to lead Wind Warriors Dream, a youth ministry, that we're starting in the inner city, and I want you guys to pastor it. And I said, how did you get that crazy idea that I need to be a part of this? Because I don't want to be a pastor. And certainly at that time, I didn't want to work with youth. And he said, do you remember at the end of the year, I gave you guys papers that said, what is your calling? And I remember him coming to our class, and the school was about this big, and I remember him coming to us saying, what is your calling? And uh, I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, well, I picked out the people that said they wanted to work with youth to be a part of the team, and then I picked you guys out to be the leaders. I said, I didn't put anything about youth on my paper. I didn't put one thing about youth. I didn't put one thing about pastoring. When they asked me what I wanted to do, I said I wanted to plant churches around the world. That's exactly what I put. I want to you know, be an apostle to the nations. That's what I put. He said, no, but I read through that, and God told me what you're supposed to be doing. He said, now you have basically one day to decide, are you going to be in this or not? Basically one day. And so I decided in prayer that this was what God wanted me to do. And I joined that team. And so that's how I started off the pastoral ministry was Win Warriors Dream as a second-year student starting that year began pastoring teenagers, began working with young adults. And I did that for my whole first year of school all the way. I mean my whole uh, last second year of school, did it through the summer. And then for about five months into the next year, and I was on staff at the School of Missions. Then from there, we planted a church out of the youth group. And then out of the church, we did all of our ministries. Interns came from different Bible colleges, worked in the summer with me. And then as they worked in the summer, they became to be staff. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today and how I developed a staff and how I had people help me. Uh, Then after pastoring in New Orleans, I came to Belmont Assembly of God here in Chicago to youth pastor for eight months. And I'm going to share a little bit about how that happened. And then after that, started this church, which now I've pastored for five years. So can you say amen? There it is. There's a life of ministry right there. What I always think is funny, you know, you can read the greatest person's life like in two paragraphs in Wikipedia. It's something like how, how humbling life can treat you when you're done and over, you know. It's just it all just gets shrunk down to this. Have you seen that? I mean, I was just watching the Oscars yesterday, and there was that girl, I forget her name, she died, and um, they think it was because she was taking too much cold medicine. And I just wanted to, like, research about her, you know, and I, and I went to her Wikipedia page, and it was like, like two paragraphs. She did this, this, and this. Here are some movies. There it is. Heath Ledger, the same thing. It just makes you think, friends, it only counts for God. It only counts for God. So let's get into these lessons. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Amen. So lesson number one, everything in the kingdom of God starts small. Matthew 25, 23. You see, I want to help you understand that everything 
that I believe happens in the ministry starts small. When you think about how God created the world, how did he start? He started with Adam and Eve. He didn't start with the human race. He didn't say, like, here's 10,000 people. Let's start being human beings. You know, I mean, you guys start doing your thing. No, he starts with two people. When he starts with the nation of Israel, he doesn't start with, like, you know, 10,000 of them. He says, Abraham, you are going to do it, and your children are going to do it. It's like he messes with them. It's like he starts, it would be like me uh, walking up to um, my man Rick here going, what's up, millionaire? What's up, millionaire? And just calling him millionaire. He's like, come on, why are you messing with me? You know I got a million dollars. You know, not that I know of. But just like every day, come on, you're going to have a million dollars. And then he's like, no, I don't got a million dollars. And I'm like, listen, yeah, you're going to have a million dollars through that barber shop you're going to start. And he's like, I don't even want to start a barber shop. What are you talking about? That is how foolish it was to Abraham. God is coming up to him, calling him the father of many nations, and then he's telling him he's going to give him a kid, and he doesn't have any of that. That's how God builds ministries. God does it exactly like that. That's why you guys should go around calling each other bishop and apostle and, and all of these things by faith. Just look at each other right now and just say something by faith. Say, what's up, apostle? Come on. Come on. You need to learn to speak the language of God, which we'll get into in just a little bit, which is dreams and visions. Everybody say dreams and visions. So I want to give you a couple of stories of a small beginning. So when Warrior's Dream starts, I don't have time to get in all of this, but it basically started with a whole lot of hype. We, we started advertising. We got teenagers to come because we offered them pizza. Our first service, we had about 150 kids there. It was awesome. But from that point on, the numbers just began to take a nosedive. Then Juan, who was the co-pastor, Juan had so many things going on in his life and getting married. That's why you have to be careful with getting married. He had to drop out of ministry and drop out of school. So now the guy who's not even called to youth ministry, the guy that doesn't even feel called to pastor, is the only one pastor in the ministry now. Then at the same time, the school said, we've been giving you all this money. We've been paying for the pizza and all that. We're done doing that. Now you guys are on your own. So we went from renting this facility, having all of this transportation provided, to me rolling up in a park, giving away water guns, you know, like these little squirt guns. And... I began to say to the Lord, what's going on? I mean, I don't feel like doing this anymore. And I went up to Chancellor No, and I said, after I graduate, I'm done with the Warrior's Dream. You know, I got one more semester left here. Uh, you know, I've done my, my thing. I'm just rolling out now. He said, if you do that, you're a hireling. That's what he called me. He said, if you do that, you are a hireling. If you leave this ministry the way it is and you go anywhere else, you're just a hireling. He said, I won't recommend you anywhere. That's what he told me. So that's how I had to go back home and pray. No pressure. Amen. There was no pressure. <laughs> so then I get to the point where I realize I'm staying in New Orleans. I am now going to be the Wind Warriors Dream Pastor. And I remember flying on a plane to visit a church to start fundraising. And there was this guy, and I've mentioned it to you guys before in different services, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it. There was this guy named Steve Wilkes, and he was on the plane next to me. And uh, he was a businessman, and he saw me get out my Bible. I started reading my Bible on the plane. He said, hey, what's, what do you do? And I said, I'm a Bible college student. I'm pastoring these young people when Warriors Dream. He said, oh, man, that sounds pretty cool. You know, my daughter's about that age. I've been having some trouble with her. And I said, yeah, what's she been doing? She said, he said, well, she's been doing drugs and you know, she hasn't been living right. I said, man, I used to do drugs, and God changed me. He said, man, could, could you pray for her? I said, I'll pray for her right now. I said, what's her name? We began to pray on the plane. And Steve said, man, do you have any information 
on your um, on your ministry, what you're doing. I had this little brochure that I had made, and I said, yeah, man, here's this, here's this uh, you know, brochure for When Warriors Dream. He said, you know, I'm going to stay in touch with you because this blessed me, you praying for my daughter on this plane. Well, a couple of weeks later, I got a check in the mail from, from Steve Wilkes for $300. And that was basically more than what I had even gotten from the church that I was flying to, to go visit. They only gave me a couple hundred dollars, you know. And so here I had this $300 check, and I was running around the Bible college with it. This was the first time I had really ever raised money from a stranger. Before it was just friends and family. Here's this guy I met on a plane. And I'm telling everybody, man, he, this brother blessed me and they're saying how much did he give you how much did he give you you know and i said three hundred dollars and they're like oh man that's not nothing and I, I remember people telling me that like man you need to raise a lot more than that but i was just so happy that that there was three hundred dollars that a man had sent me well i sent him a big thank you note i'm like you know steve thank you you are awesome you know this money's going to go towards these uh, these kids camps we're doing over the summer and here's some pictures and man just thank you like i was just just amazed that he had done this well then uh, about a month later he sends a five thousand dollar check he sends a five thousand dollar check and he ended up giving about twenty thousand dollars total to the ministry he didn't get a $7,000 check after that. And I began to realize that things start off small. That he was wanting to see if I was going to be faithful with that little bit that he was giving me. He wanted to see, like, was I really willing to work? Because business people know you have to work to be successful. You see, people in the world understand that you have to work. When you go to a job, they're not going to make you the boss and manager of the whole company. When you go work for McDonald's, they're not going to say, we're so glad you showed up here. We need you to run this restaurant, you know. When you go to the mall, they're not going to say, now own, you know, I mean, now run this whole thing. No, what they want to do is see if you can come on time, stay, you know, late, if you can take the assignments that they give you and begin to build and build. And that's the same thing that God's looking at in the kingdom. Matthew 25, 23, his Master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Everybody say faithful servant. We, you have been faithful with a few things. Somebody say a few things. I will put, in you, put you in charge of many things. Can somebody say many things. Come and share your master's happiness. How many want many things? Come on, I want many things. Don't, don't be shy. There's nothing wrong with asking God to bless you. How many want many things? But where does it start? Where does it start, y'all? Come on, with few things. Y'all don't know how to read the scripture? Come on. How many want many things? What does it start with? There you go. If you want many things in God's kingdom, you've got to start with few things. You see, right now, every one of you has a ministry that's probably in the few things. It's few things. It's a few people. It's a few assignments. Like I was talking to Adolfo. He gets a few calls. He needs to call them back within 24 hours. Right now, Griselda has a few outreaches planned. Right now, you guys doing points of light, you have a few teenagers coming. Those of you in the Latino ministry, you have a few Latinos coming. You're in the few things right now. But if you want many things, you have to be faithful with the few things. You cannot treat ministry like, the, uh, like people on the job are slack and lazy and expect to go anywhere. God does not bless your mess. The world knows how to work harder for what they want than many Christians do. 
You'll go downtown and you'll see the buildings still lit up at 9 o'clock at night. Why? Because people burning midnight oil to get ahead on Wall Street, to get ahead in their company by tomorrow. You'll see people in the companies and young upstarters, you'll see them begin to get on that boss's good side and do everything they can for that boss and take trips without pay. And they'll begin to take on extra assignments. Why? Because they want to advance. You see, a lot of you came from friends that were bums and just people going nowhere in life and clubbing and all that. Maybe you didn't get a taste of corporate America and what really makes America happen. Let me tell you, it's built on hard work. These people who own properties, the man who owns this, this uh, building that we're in right now, this man works hard. These people have thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Some of them have 50 employees, 100 employees. Some of them are making a million plus, 2 million, 3 million a year. You have to understand, they don't play games. In ministry, I see a lot of you right now charging your phone back in my office. You're coming in scraggly. You, you don't smell right. You don't dress right. Come on. Some of you just look funny coming here. You need to be in excellence. You need to make sure you come sharp. If we're dressing casual, you need to come in something that looks nice, smells nice. You need to make sure that your phone is charged. You need to make sure that you've done things the right way. You don't come sloppy into ministry. You don't come in, in lack of excellence. You don't let your pastor come up and fiddle-diddle with stuff around here. Y'all need to be Johnny on the spot. And you need to take on extra assignments. Because let me tell you, in this church right now, this church will pass you by if you don't start working harder. You see, this church, don't think of yourself like, well, I'm just going to work with pastor. No, there's people coming behind you that you don't even know right now that are going to be more hungry than some of you are right now. And some of you all think, well, I'm just going to kind of coast and get this, and I'm going to be in pastor's inner circle. No, you better learn how to work hard. You better learn how to pr prove yourself. I'm telling you right now, people are losing jobs all over this country, and they're only giving it to the people who are willing to do the few things well. Don't even think to yourself, well, I'm this pastor right now. I'm this youth pastor. I can't be replaced. You can't be replaced. You have to do things in excellence. I was just reading that book that you guys have for church planning, Launch. They say fire people that ain't in the right place. Get them out and get them out quick because they will pollute the ministry. I'm telling you something. Some of the greatest ministries I've ever heard of, like Lester Summerall, fired people like every week. He had like 300 employees working for him, firing them, firing them. Well, I thought they were saved. I thought he was supposed to. Man, ministry ain't a joke. You ain't going to come to ministry late and expect to get something done. You're not going to come to ministry with your shirt untucked in that sense if you're supposed to have it tucked in. You're not going to come to ministry with some, you know, spaghetti stain on your shirt from lunch, got your phone charging in the pastor's office, asking him, you know, what we're going to do today. No, you need to come prepared. You need to come to work. You need to come to serve. Everything that you see that I've done over 12 years, I've done it with the best of my ability and excellence. The website that you see right now, built it in excellence. The things that we do with our audio and visual in excellence. It's not a, it's not a, a, a coincidence that Metro Praise has lasted when 80% of churches don't make it to five years. It is not a coincidence, my friends. I have worked hard to be where I'm at. While people were out, you know, trying to be big-time pastors, I remember this one man was always trying to do conferences and conferences, and he destroyed his little church because he didn't know just how to serve his people and just pastor them. While I was pastoring a few people, I went back to college. Now I'm an SUM cohort director or a visionary leader as a professor. How do you think that came? Do you think that came by me slacking off like some of you guys slack off? 
Do you think I became an SUM cohort director by slacking off like the way y'all can't even get up and do your prayer journal? You guys can't get up and do your exercises? That's not how I made it this far. Taking classes, working hard, writing papers. I took a paper and made it a book. How do you think that Islam book got in your hand? That was supposed to be a 15-page paper that is over 120 typewritten pages. And some of y'all want to do what I'm doing. Y'all have to learn to do what I did. And if y'all don't get that in your head right now, you're going to learn it the hard way over time. You're going to watch people leave your ministry, and it's not because the devil had people leave your ministry. It's because you didn't know how to call them back, Pastor. You didn't know how to be at their house when they needed you to be there. You didn't know how to keep your word. You didn't know how to be excellent and have a a reputation that they could look up to. They thought you were a joke. From the time we started this church, the first handshake I gave a visitor, they knew I was serious about planning a church. There was never a misunderstanding of who I was. This, this idea that ministry is sloppy, get it out your mind. This idea that you're going to give God like you are the drummer boy. I'm just going to give my little thing to God. Whatever I can give, he's going to take. No, that's not the way it is. Let me tell you something. Everybody who says they want to sing ain't going to be in the worship band. We're going to have the best. Everybody that says I want to preach ain't going to be able to preach. You're going to have to be the best. Everybody that says I just want to lead a Bible study ain't going to lead a Bible study. You have to be the best. Stop thinking to yourself, this is like freebie time, you know? This is, you know, where where in the corporate world you have to work for it, you have to earn it. But in the church, we just so desperate, we just going to take whoever comes. We're so glad you're here. Oh, you play the piano. We're so glad you're here. Okay, you work the cafe. No! I remember starting this church, we only had one qualified person to do anything. One qualified person. They came late, and we told them, you're not qualified anymore. They broke down in tears in front of us and said, are you kidding me? There ain't nobody in the church. It's just you and me. Am I telling the truth? And they broke down and cried. We said, we ain't low on the standard. You better be here on time. The person left the church. For a year and a half, if not two years over that. So here I had my first potential leader. But I said, you better be faithful. You better come here on time. Well, this is the time I get off for this. No, then you can't be a leader then. Tell me when. That's exactly what it was. They kept coming late after work. We said, well, then you're not ready to be a leader yet. Until you can rearrange your schedule, you're not ready. It offended them so bad they left for two years. Eventually they did come back. But that's how it went down, my friends. Excellence in ministry. Excellence. You see, some of y'all haven't seen the 80% of churches that fail. You haven't seen them. But I'm telling you, I've looked at them. I've sat down and I've talked to the pastors. And I'm going to tell you one of the biggest problems is this right here. They were not faithful in few things. People want to be T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes was preaching, woman, thou art loose, to his Sunday school like a man on fire. He never changed when he got to the stadiums. I was at T.D. Jakes' first membership conference, and I saw all of his inner staff was all of his friends from the first church talking about, this is how this man was preaching, and it was four of us in this old, dirty old storefront. I'm telling you, my friends, you cannot think that success will make you successful. You've got to work to become successful. Success doesn't come to the bums, to the lazy people. Jesus even said, what, you can't pray with me for an hour? Come on, it takes work to be successful in the kingdom. It takes being faithful, and it starts right now. 
It starts right now with you in the ministry saying, I'm going to be faithful with my assignments. I'm going to be faithful with what I'm I'm supposed to do right here. You're going to look at your assignments, your due dates, your papers. Right now, as if you were Billy Graham in ministry and what you did resulted in souls being saved or damned to hell. You need to look at it that serious. There was a point in my first couple of semesters of Bible college that I didn't take it that serious. But as I got the revelation of that, I began to get straight A's. I began to get straight A's in Bible college. Why? Because I worked hard at it. People have always looked at me. Pastor, how are you in school, teaching a school, planning a church, going overseas, writing books? You know why I do that? Because I work hard for this. Do not think to yourself, ministry is a game. People have tried to be leaders in our church. They start going through the process, and then they say to us, Oh, oh, you, you know, uh, th- this kind of reminds me of school. This is, this is like a job being a leader. I'm like, let me tell you, let me help you out. I'm like, come here, come here, come here. Let me tell you a little secret. This is going to be harder than your job. This is going to require more than what you do at school. Because this is for Jesus. We're going to expect more from you. We're going to demand more. We're going to expect more. This is for Jesus. If you think it's a joke, why don't you read what the Levites had to do? You couldn't be a Levite if you wore glasses. You couldn't be a Levite if you had skin problems. You couldn't be a Levite if you had 101 defects. You had to be blameless and faultless, and you had to be spotless, even your physical appearance, to be a Levite. People died. Man tried to touch the ark. Uzzah tried to help out God. Died. Man, you better know what you're faithful to. You better be faithful to what God told you to do and don't do anything else. It will cost you. You see, this school needs to come to another level. These cohorts need to come to another level. This is not show up in your pajamas, you know, figure out what's going on. Oh, Pat, there's my professor. I'm just going to slack off today. No, this ain't that. I'm telling you, you will be passed right up. You know why? When I started the first church, why college students began to work with us, people from North Central Bible College began to come down in the summer. First one, Lynette Fredrickson, we called her Freddie, and Sarah Allen. And you know how they became my staff? It's because the moment they came down, I began to give them devotions. I began to give them ministry assignments. I began to treat them like men and uh, women of God. And some of their friends that came down, they said, I have never been challenged like this before in my whole life. They grew up in the church. They were from Minnesota, back up in the country in cornfields. And they began to work for Jesus. And they said, I'm so on fire by you being in my life and pastoring me and taking me out here. We're going to graduate and come here and live in the inner city with you. So people came and said, we'll work with you, Pastor. College grad- Graduates gave up jobs that they could have for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year and said, We'll come down and work here. Why? Because they saw somebody their own age that was excellent, willing to die for the ministry. That young lady, Lynette Fedrick, said, when I merged the church, ended up working for Pastor Grogan for a thousand plus member church. And Nancy will tell you, she was and still is to this day the best administrator she ever had. And I had her for four years. So somebody that was with me for four years went to a megachurch, and the megachurch said, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is what it's about right here. I want a woman like this right here that knows how to multitask, that knows how to come early and stay late. Lynette Fredrickson, there it is. Do you want to be the next Freddie Boo? Come on. Do you want to be the next hard worker that blows people away? Do you want to be the next person? You're going to have to work, my friends. 
You're going to have to give something up to be great in the kingdom of God. Lesson number two, the kingdom of God is built with relationships. You have got to understand that you cannot do this alone. Relationships come from the heart that say, I want to be a friend, that I want to serve. Right now, some of the relationships that you guys are making in this ministry, in this school, with other students in different cohorts and campuses, is going to be what gives you the next step. You see, because if you're thinking to yourself, you can do it on your own. You can't. You need relationships. You need people to help you and come alongside of you. When I think of relationships that have impacted my life, <clears throat> I think of three main relationships. One is with Brother Anthony and the School of Urban Missions. The second one is Pastor Grogan and Urbana Assembly, now known as Stone Creek. And the third one is Dwight Denyes from Emmanuel Christian Center. Now, I'll tell you about Pastor Dwight because I've told you guys about the other ones before. And those who are listening from the cohorts, if you want to hear other examples, listen to Sunday's message. So I'm giving other examples today in this message. Dwight Denyes was a multi-million dollar businessman whose dad was the pastor of the largest Assembly of God church in Minnesota, 3,000 people. And... I had a friend that worked on staff at that church, and by being around there, they began to hear that I was working in the inner city. They began to hear that I was doing things that God was blessing. This church had over a hundred missionaries it supported, a hundred missionaries, anywhere from $25 a month to $500 a month. 100 missionaries, 3,000-member church. The son of the pastor, Dwight, was a successful businessman in real estate. And by me visiting my friend on staff, I began to meet the senior pastor, the son, Dwight, the worship leader, and spend time with them, the youth pastor, who had 500 students in his youth group, let me preach. The first day he met me, he said, I'm letting you preach tonight in my youth group. That was the largest youth group I ever preached to. They took me out snowboarding. That's where I first fell in love with it. And Dwight said, man, I want to come out there and see what you're doing. I want, to, I want to visit your ministry. So here, this man who had all of this money, success in business, all of these relationships within this large church, said, I'm going to come down and visit you. He came down during our outreach, and Nancy probably doesn't remember, but it was the outreach that you were at. And he came and he slept on the gym floor with us. Here comes this businessman. And he went out to the projects with us. And he began to see what I was doing. And at this time, I was just that young man that you saw, just in my early 20s. And he began to share with me how much he had loved what we were doing. And one day he was talking to me and tears were coming down his eyes. And he was saying, this is awesome. He said, I've never seen this before. You guys reach the people. You're out in the streets. You're making disciples out of the, the hardest kids in the, in, in the city, in the nation. He says, I want you to come tell my dad and the church board this. So he flew me all the way up there. And he said, in front of the church board, I want you to tell them what you're doing. I was just a young man. I was nervous. And I just began to share with them. Man, we go out to the inner city. We bust in the kids. We give out food. We give out groceries. 
And they said, okay, thank you. You can step out. And I went out. They talked for a little bit. He came back to me, and he said, our church has just made a $70,000 pledge to you. We are going to support you more than we have supported any missionary. Out of our hundred, you're going to be the most supported. We're going to give you $10,000 right now. And for the next five years, we're going to give you $1,000 a month. Relationships. Relationships. You see, my friends, it's about relationships. It's about loving people. I want to tell you something. You have to learn how to make relationships with people. Have I always done it the, wrong, uh, the right way? No, I've done it the wrong way more than anything else. But it's those times that I've done it the right way that I've realized that the kingdom of God is built with relationships. Proverbs 27.10 says, Do not forsake your friend and the friend of your father. and Do not go to your brother's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. What does that mean? That means that my brother wasn't even serving the Lord. My family couldn't help me in those ways. But I found a friend that I could call on. I found a friend that loved me and was there when I needed him. You see, that's what ministry begins to do in relationships. You may have come here being dependent upon a family member, but there's going to come a time when your family member is not going to be the best person to go to. You're going to need to have a brother or sister in Christ to go to and have a relationship with. You see, if you think about it, you're just one relationship away from fulfilling your dream. You're always just one relationship away. Whatever dream you have right now, think of this young lady from the movie Precious as I was watching it at the Oscars. Here, this African-American young lady, she's overweight, but she wants to be an actress. Oprah Winfrey and uh, the guy from uh, Tyler Perry. Yeah, he's putting together, they're putting together this movie. They need this certain actress. Long story short, she skips college that day. She shows up to the auditions. Within a week, she's in front of the Hollywood producers making a movie that was nominated for like four or five Academy Awards. And, and Oprah was saying, here is this example of a, a Hollywood story. But I'm telling you something. She was just one relationship away from that. Somebody had to tell her about that. Some agent had to represent her. There's always just one relationship between you and where you need to be. If you look at the story of Esther and Mordecai, see, Esther was that one relationship between the Jews and a king, just one relationship away. Salvation, Jesus is that one relationship away between you and God. You can't get to God, but Jesus is the middleman. There's a statistic that you're six people away from knowing everybody on the planet. I have found out that I am only two people away from knowing the president personally. Personally. I know one person that has a great friendship with Rick Warren, and Rick Warren is a personal advisor to the president. And the guy that I know is great friends with Rick Warren. So I am only two people away from the president. You see, it's a relationship. That man could say one day to Rick, hey, I know this pastor. This pastor could say it to the president, and I could be sitting in the president's office preaching repentance to him. It's just relationship. It's just relationship. And you want to build them in integrity and in honesty so people know who you are. You're not fake. You're real. Amen? Going on to lesson three that I've learned in ministry. Fear is an emotion, not a fact. Second Timothy 1, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I want to tell you something, that you will face fear in ministry. I have faced fear at every major turn. I have faced fear. 
How many know what fear feels like? Doesn't fear feel terrible? Don't you hate that feeling? You doubt yourself. You doubt God's call. You get that feeling like, I don't know if it can work out. Maybe some of you have like these fears like we call phobias, afraid of heights, afraid of flying, afraid of spiders, afraid of whatever, clowns, birds, you know, all these fears that people have. But let me ask you a question. In ministry, can you live in that fear and be successful? No. You have to learn to go against your fears. You have to learn to put down your fears and do it anyway. Joyce Myers, who was going to be my other example, was doing her women's Bible studies like she does her conferences 20 years ago. And she talks about fear and how fear and anxiety used to grip her heart. And she wrote a book, you know, Do It Afraid. Something like that, Do It Afraid. And the whole idea is, is if you have fear, who cares? Do it anyway. Because what difference does it make? Think about it. Your body is meant to protect yourself and uh, preserve you, but when you don't have a good fear, like let's say I'm afraid of walking out in the middle of traffic, okay, that preserves me. But if I'm afraid to go on top of the Sears Tower, that's not a good fear. The Sears Tower is going to be there. If I get up there and look down and I'm afraid and I let that fear affect me from doing something, maybe I'm supposed to have a job on the Sears Tower. If I, if I let the afraid of heights t- take me away from that, that fear is not good. Or let's say God calls us to be missionaries and go other places. If we let those fears come in the way, that's not good. That's not preserving us. That's actually holding us back. So think about it. Let's say somebody here says, I'm afraid of heights. Well, do it anyway. Go on the highest thing. Make yourself go there two days a week or something. Just get up there. Look down there until you feel comfortable. Somebody's afraid of flying. Fly all the time. They say become a pilot. They say a lot of pilots started off being afraid of flying. That's actually one of the things they recommend to people. I'm being serious. Is that if you're afraid of flying, become a pilot. Learn about flying. Get up there. Learn the mechanics of it. I'm telling you the truth. You're afraid to start a ministry on your own. Well, start a ministry on your own. Get over the fear. You're afraid of failing. Go out there and try something bigger than yourself. And if you fail, then you'll know what it feels like. I could tell you about so many failures. Because you know what? I got over the fear of failure. I can tell you about failures and outreaches. Failures and trying to do things. You guys have been here for things that we said, oh, this is going to work. This is going to be great. This is going to be huge. And it didn't work out. Why? Because you can't be afraid of trying things. It's because you're, you know, afraid. Fear will hold you back from doing successful things. I want to tell you a story about me and the first time I went to India. When we were in India, we did not know Pastor Amit from the man on the moon. This was the pastor who had contacted us by email, by internet. This is a guy who had only talked to us via communications over, you know, thousand miles away, never face to face. We had sent him a thousand dollars. I didn't know who this man was. And so there was a fear that said, do not go over there. But guess what? We went over there. And I remember this. Let me just tell you this. It's on our video page, uh, on his video page on the website. There was this idea of, man, who is this guy? What have I got myself into? In my mind, I had plan B. If he's not real, if he doesn't show up, if this has all been a scam, I know what to do. I had this plan up there. And you know what? The moment we got off the plane in his city, you know what we saw? Them holding signs. They had made signs. They had wreaths of flowers. 
And they were like crying when we came. And they were like, you came to us. Thank you. And at that moment, I just realized fear will never stop me from traveling to any nation. Because if that's what it's like, what do I have to lose? If I go over to Pakistan and Edward's not Edward, but but Chimei is Chimei, then it's worth me having one false brother for another real brother. Are you with me? And every fear that you have in your head, there's a truth on the opposite side that you need to believe. So take, for example, you have the fear of flying. What's the truth? The, the plane will fly. If the planes were crashing every time they've flown, would people get on the planes? Would a pilot pilot a plane? No. If the Sears Tower was not sturdy, would there be anybody in that tower right now? Would there be businesses in that tower right now? Would there be elevator operators taking you up there eight hours a day? No. So there's a truth. How about taking a missionary journey? Look, look at this. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be fun and successful. Here's the truth. You're going to die no matter what, so why not die for Jesus? There's the truth. Right? Well, I'm going to go there, and I'm just promised safety. Lord, traveling mercies. You know what I'm saying? Come on. How, what about Paul's prayer of traveling mercy? He got shipwrecked three times. There's nothing wrong with praying for traveling mercies, but sometimes the Lord ain't going to give you no traveling mercy. What are you going to do, Davi, if you get shipwrecked? Would you even know what to do? Do you know how to float? Do you know how to backstroke and just, you know, come on? Do you know how to doggy paddle? Three times he was shipwrecked. What do you do? Get back on the boat. Come on. That's the way they traveled. There's always a truth opposite of your fear. Believe that as fact and not your fear. Amen? Looking at the next one. Worship is the most effective prayer. John 4, 23 through 24. Yet a time is coming has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit and Father uh, worship the Father in Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. Excuse me. We need to understand what real prayer is. For so long, this is what I thought real prayer was. I thought private prayer was the public prayer. Let me tell you something. Public prayer is for the people listening. And I love public prayer, but it's, it's for you to agree with me. So when I would get the microphone in Bible college, it would be, Dear Lord, I'm calling on you. Jesus, we need you to move right now. I'm praying 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we would just rattle through all these ways. And we were preaching our prayer. How many have ever heard somebody do that? That's a public prayer. How many know Jesus knows the Scripture? How many know you don't have to preach to Jesus to have Him hear you pray? How many know when Peter wanted something from Jesus, he didn't come up to Jesus and go, Jesus, I'm calling on you. Hear me when I call. Now, how many know Peter just went up, Jesus, we need some bread. We're kind of, guys are kind of hungry right now. Uh, Jesus, uh, Judas over here is acting crazy. Can you give me some patience? Help me with him. You see, what you need to learn is that private prayer has to go beyond the show. The most effective form of prayer I have ever seen in my life is just worshiping Him. How long does it take to tell God what you need? I mean, let's just say our needs right now. God, I need a new job. There it was. You said it. How long did that take? What, a millisecond? What, two seconds? God, I need a new job. God, bless my family. God, give me wisdom in class. Okay? You take all of those sentences, all of those prayer requests, you can reduce it down to what? Three minutes? Five minutes? All of your prayer There they are. 
Because the Bible says, present your needs before the Lord. But what are you going to do now for the rest of the day? You're going to keep talking about those same things? The Bible says he already knows you need it now. So it would be like me t- uh, telling Nancy, Nancy, I need you to drive the van today to school. And then like a few seconds later, Nancy, I need you to v- drive the van. How many know after the third or fourth time I'm going to get a slap upside my head going, what are, you at- what are you telling me that for? I already know. Are you with me? But if I come up to her and go, baby, I love you, you're awesome. How many know I could do that a hundred times and it would never get old to her? See, that's what true worship is. It's telling God you love him. See, that's relationship. That's saying to God that he's more important than the things he gives you. One of the ways that I learned this was in uh, ministry after uh, graduating in New Orleans and becoming a pastor is we began to take on three hours of prayer every day. We said we're going to pray three hours every day. Now, we prayed from 5.30 to 8.30, and a lot of that time became nap time, okay? And I'll be honest with you, I fell asleep so many times praying from 5.30 to 8.30, but I gave it my best shot. And you know what I began to realize? Is that when we came and we shouted and we hollered and we, all, we did all of that, that would only last for so long. Because, I mean, think about it. Think about it. If every day I told you for five days a week we are going to meet here for three hours, you're going to find out real quick how effective prayer is. Because, we're, you know, think about it. You're going to come the first day, and you're going to pray like you pray in church. And after about the first hour, everybody's just going to be tired. And then what do you do the next two hours? And then you're going to come back the next day, and you're going to try to do that again. And you're going to wear yourself out in a half hour. Within three to four weeks, you're just going to show up for prayer, fall on your face, and say, Jesus, I love you. Help us. We just want to hang out with you. That's what I began to find out was the most effective prayer. That was the most longevity prayer. That was the one that we could keep going day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, is when we put on worship music and we sang songs and we told God how much we loved Him. But then I began to wonder how effective is that? Maybe I'm just wasting my time. Maybe I'm just doing what feels good to me. Maybe I should pray like the way I was saying before. And then I began to read the Bible. And I began to look at the different forms of prayer that the people had in the Bible. And I began to realize that's exactly what they did. You'll never find these long prayers in the Bible. I mean, you'll find prophecies, which is God speaking to us. But you don't really find what a chapter prayer is about the longest prayer. How many know I could read a chapter right now in 30 seconds? How many know that? How many know the Lord's prayer can be said in about five seconds? You know what I began to realize is that the Levites were worshipers, that Moses was a worshiper, that David was a worshiper, that the disciples were worshipers. They weren't just people going around like monks or Muslim praying the same thing over and over and over and over again. So I want to ask you today, what's your worship life like? Not just your prayer life. Because, yes, you've been taught to clock in for an hour and pray a day. But are you learning to worship with God? That's what's going to keep you. You see, because the Father is seeking worshipers. Lesson number five, visions and dreams are the language of God. Acts 2.17 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Have you ever found yourself daydreaming? Have you ever played out the scenario in your head? What would I do if I had a million dollars? What would I do with a lottery ticket? Let me ask you a question. Is that all your dreams and imaginations are meant for? Or does God have so much more for you than that? What I began to realize in ministry is that by me spending time in worship, daydreaming, and thinking about God, those things began to come to pass. I'm not saying all my dreams have come to pass. I'm just saying I saw things that I only saw in my dreams and visions come to pass. Because when God deals with us, He deals with us in a supernatural way because the natural way makes no sense. Take, for example, God speaking to Abraham. You're going to have as many descendants as what? The stars in the sky. So how many know that there was probably nights out that Abraham's walking, and what does he start seeing? The stars. And what does he start doing? He starts daydreaming. He starts thinking about what little little son's going to look like, what his wife's going to be like, what grandchildren are going to be like, how this nation is going to be like. Then what did the Bible say? He said, as many as grains of sand are on the ground, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Why does God deal with us that way? Because you can't understand it any other way. Unless you would use your imagination, how are you going to get it? How about the prophecies of Jesus coming to us A virgin is born to us, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder. How many know if that doesn't strike an imagination in your mind that you ain't hearing from God? You're living 2,000 years before Jesus comes. You don't know in 2,000 years Jesus is coming. You're just hearing that a son is coming. There's going to be a kingdom on his shoulders. How about visions? What about Daniel? Seeing the Ancient of Days come. And then the Son of Man coming next to him and receiving worship. How many know the only way he can understand in an Old Testament concept the divinity of Jesus is by him seeing a vision? Oh, I get it now. But he he didn't get it because he said after that, my spirit was troubled within me. So let me ask you a question. Are you dreaming and visioneering with the Lord? Are you visioneering with God? Not pioneering, but visioneering. What is your dream right now? The Bible says without vision the people perish. What is the vision God has put in your heart? What can you imagine and see yourself doing? That's the language of the Spirit. I remember there was a time when uh, we had no building when we first started this church. And we were meeting in our house. We had only been there a few months. We turned five years old this month. Matter of fact, the first Sunday of March was our first Sunday. So we're five years old now, but we're celebrating it this Sunday coming up. And I remember Nancy and I were meeting in our house doing Bible study. But I began to just close my eyes and just believe that we were in a church. And I just began to think of, you know, like seats being filled. And I was jogging at that time around my neighborhood. And I'm just jogging and I just see in my mind a church and it's a big church. And seats are being filled and there's like this, you know, aisle and there's an altar. And I just have this idea like we're planning a church. We're going to have a church. Listen to me. I would visioneer and dream as I'm jogging. While I'm doing that, I jog right by Methodist Church every day. All of a sudden, one day I jogged by and God goes, that's your church. That's what he told me. He said, that's your church. 
I looked at the sign. They were flying the rainbow flag. They were, they were down on the rainbow side. Are you listening to me? They were affirming gays and lesbians and all this. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I am not walking into some liberal Methodist church with gays and lesbians and all this having a church. And God said, not your church. I, just, I come in just in my clothes, and I knock on the door. And, and I get in there, and I see the secretary, and I'm just like, hey, I'm just kind of wondering. I'm just like doubting God. I'm just like, hey, I'm kind of wondering, you know, it, you know, if I could talk to your pastor and, and see if, if we could rent your church. He says, oh, yeah, our pastor's right here. You can come in and talk to her right now. So here I am, like, just like my jogging clothes. I'm walking right in. And guess who the pastor is? A lesbian. And then, and then this lesbian walks up to me, hey, what's up? She's got this real short haircut, kind of the butch looking kind of the lesbian. And, and, and I talk to her real quick and I say, hey, you know, uh, we're a spirit-filled Pentecostal church. I'm trying to let her know who I am. And I said, I, I wanted to know, could we rent your building on Sunday night? And the moment I was there in front of her, just wisdom, like bam, like God just downloaded it to me. I said, we'll give you half of everything we take up in offerings until we meet the price that you want to give us uh, to set for us in rent. And we'll be at your disposal, clean the building, do whatever you want us to do. Like bam, I just put an idea out right in front of her. She's like, that sounds like that could work. Why don't you put that in writing? I have an elders meeting, a leaders meeting with our church tomorrow, and I'll let you know. I came back later that next day, gave her the paper. That night, they said yes. The day after that, we had the keys to a Methodist building, huge three-story building that we hadn't paid $1 for. And all we had to do was just get half of our tithes and offerings, and I showed her how much we were taking up. She wanted 500 a month for it. And I had to show her that the first month I only brought in like, you know, like $600, so I gave her 300 And then the next month we brought in like $800, uh, you know, 850 whatever, so I gave her like 425 And by the third month I was giving her $500 a month in a Methodist building. But I was just jogging, just dreaming. I want to tell you something. Before I ever uh, went to India, before we ever went to these places, always dreaming about church planning, always dreaming about what it would be like to do that. And then all of a sudden, Ish takes a flag. He starts waving it around our worship leader. Uh, he takes a flag from our missionary, Mozambique, Teresa uh, Tisa, takes the flag and waves it in, in, in the time of, of worship one day. He says, God wants us to pray for this nation. And then after that, I said, let's buy the, the more nations flags. And you guys know the story, but just for the sake of those listening. So we bought more flags of different nations, and people brought in their flags. We started waving them around. And just at that time, we got contacted by Mexico and India to go plant churches there. And why? Because I was always dreaming and visioneering and, and dreaming with God in prayer that we could go and plant churches around the nations. You see, you cannot let, listen, write this down. You cannot let your present situation dictate your future identity. You cannot let your present situation dictate your future identity. Who will you be in the future? Come on, think of something great for God, a martyr. There it is, dream about it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, what are you going to be in the future? Missionary, pastor, youth pastor. Okay, that's way out there. Now guess what? Jared, you can't let this present situation, what you're in right now, dictate that future identity. 
You cannot say to yourself, man, I'm nothing, man. I'm just, I'm just living, barely getting along right now. I only have two people in my ministry. Man, I can never be that. I can never be that. Are you listening? You can't do that. You cannot let your present situation, what you're in right now, dictate who you're going to be in the future, your future identity. So how do you live in the present with a future mindset, dreams and visions, dreams and visions. That's how you go through the mundane right now. That's how you pastor two people like you're pastoring a million. That's how you go to school and you do your homework like you're writing a book. That's how you do your exercises like you're out there raising million dollars to plant more churches. That's how you dedicate to the little things right now, believing that they're the future things, is because you do it with dreams and visions. Get the idea right now that what you're doing may not be what you'll be at in your future, but it gets you to where you're going. You cannot let this present situation. I've seen so many people start small and not learn how to dream, learn how to have visions, and they let this bother them. I mean, imagine being like in a position of a church planner. Some of you may do that as well. Think about this. You work hard all week, 40 hours a week. Mental stress is on your mind. You're giving your people all you got. And then Sunday, you got to check your offering to see if you can pay your bills now. There ain't no guarantee. You could have preached your guts out. You could have prepared your message. You could have done everything right. You could have just touched heaven. God could have showed up. And you go to the offering, and there's only $400 in the offering. And now you go home, and there's $1,000 of bills. How do you live through days like that? I've lived through so many days like that. That's why they say, pastors, worst day is Monday. I've lived through so many days. You know how you do that? Is when you get alone with God, you start dreaming about what it's going to be like paying your bills. You start dreaming about what it's going to be like when people tithe and give. You start dreaming about having more than enough. You start having visions about it. You start asking God to give you dreams and visions. When you close your eyes, you see what God is saying in the future, and you believe it, and you say, God, just give me hope to hang on, to stay with it. One more example about the language of visions and dreams. I think about my friends who took my youth pastoring job at Belmont Assembly of God, and, and for five years, they worked at Belmont Assembly of God, and they took the youth group, and they built it strong. And then they came to this point that they resigned, and they said, now we're going to go to another church, and we're going to go to this church in Florida, and we're going to work there. They get to the church in Florida. They're trying to sell their house here. They've dismissed, the, I mean, they've been dismissed from the congregation in a good way. They're assistant youth pastors, now the youth pastor, Joey, and, and, and now they're going to Florida, and, and they're going to be blessed, and they came by our house the day before they left, and just everything is great. They get down to Florida. They have a problem with the pastor, and I, I take my friend's side. My friend is right, amen, and they have to leave. Now, they can't go back to Chicago because it's already done. They can't be in Florida. There's no place for them. They now have to go back to their family's house in Minnesota and camp out there until God gives the next move. Keep the Velser family in your prayers. But I remember being jealous of them at one point because when Nancy and I were first starting the church, 
who was like, man, I used to be a youth pastor, and I was watching his wife begin to get paid and how beautiful their home was, and they were having this townhouse. And I began to say, God, man, why? Why are you doing this to me? This is torture. I could go get a job doing what he's doing, but, but I can't, and I'm just seeing them blessed, and they're buying new cars, and, and God is blessing them, and God, this is what God tells me. And I've confessed this to my brother. This is what God tells me. He says, if you will sow into this ministry now, you will reap it for the rest of your life. You will reap it for the rest of your life. If you work hard now, you'll reap it for the rest of your life. And when those small offerings began to come in, you know what God began to say to me? Listen, everybody listen. God began to say this to me. Love them on the bad days because they're going to bring you good days. And you don't want to change your love for them. This is what God told me. So when 400 came in, God, I thank you for 400. I got $1,000 with the bills, Lord. I'm putting this on the credit card. But God, I thank you for 400. And Nancy and I made a determination. We'll never beg for money. We'll never take long offerings. You guys know that. I just preach long sermons, not long offerings. Amen. And all of a sudden, we began to see $1,000 come in the offerings. We began to see $2,000, upwards of $5,000, $6,000 sometimes coming in a week in the offerings. And God is like, see, I told you. If you love them on these days, they'll be with you on these days. But how did I stay faithful, Lauren, on those days? I couldn't look at the natural. I couldn't look at 10 people and be encouraged. I couldn't look at $400 and be encouraged. I had to close my eyes. And I had to start speaking the language of God. I had to start speaking the language of dreams and visions. I had to start imagining a Bible college that wasn't even a Bible college yet. I had to start imagining that a Griselda would come when a Griselda wasn't even there yet. I had to start imagining that we could have these different things when they weren't even there. And it was that that brought me through those times. And now when I'm watching my brother go through all of that... We are now hitting it into fifth gears. Why? Because we built it for five years. Now it's a foundation for the rest of our lives. When I'm watching other people suffer in the economy, I'm watching other people suffer in their transitions and going through hell in ministry, I'm now saying, God, you were right. If I stuck with this then, it will pay off now. And I'm encouraged by that same thing with Brother Anthony. He's taken on this building, million plus dollars in the time of recession. Like, who does that? In the time of recession, he's building a church based on financial outside support in the time of recession. But God said, do it. And he's suffering now. And he's going through it. But I can just hear him saying, don't feel sorry for me. Because in a few years, when the recession is over, this church will be smoking, blowing, and going. And in a few months, the thing's going to be paid off anyway. So there's some times that you just had to go through something in the present that's hard, that's suffering. But you've got to have vision and dream of your future identity. I will be there. I will be doing that. I will get a degree. I will be in the ministry. I will be that. Therefore, I will not let this present situation dictate my future identity. I'm more, Nancy had to tell herself, I'm more than a banker at Parkway. I had to tell myself, I'm more than a pastor of four people. I'm more than just a Bible study in my house, pastor. I'm, I'm an apostle to the nations, pastoring 100,000 people with 50 churches here and 500 around the world. You've got to believe that who you're going to be is real. It's not a make-believe dream. It's real. It's future, but it's real. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The whole 
hope of the, the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. Do you have it? No, but you got faith. Well, what, what does faith produce? The thing that you don't have. So, yeah, I don't have 100,000 yet, but what do I have? I have faith that will bring the 100,000. I don't have 500, so this is small compared to where we're going. Are you, are you getting it? i got to still speak the language of God. I can get discouraged now. Come on, look at lesson number six. Spiritual gifts are not earned. They're given as gifts. One of the things that I've learned watching people in ministry, Pentecostal people, Pentecostal, spirit-filled, tongue-talking people, is that we start to put pressure on ourselves to have spiritual giftings work out. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So often we think to ourselves, if I pray more, I'll have more power. If I fast more, I'll have more power. One of the toughest lessons I ever learned, that that's not the way it works, is that they're just gifts, is with a pastor's son. In New Orleans, Pastor Sutherland had a son that had severe brain damage and severe handicap because his mom was a crack addict. The baby was going to be aborted, but the mother decided to keep it, and these pastors adopted that child. This is a 24-hour full-time job for the Sutherlands. The child, when I knew the child, was roughly around 11 years old, but lived in a crib. A crib. That's how disabled the child was. Well, I began to fast and pray, because David Hogan, a man who seen the dead raised, encouraged me to have three days of fasting a week. So my last year of Bible college, I fasted from Monday after lunch around 2 or 3 to Thursday around 2 or 3 for nine months. That's how long I fasted, for three days every week, just liquids. Prayed for hours after I got done with school. Well, on one of these fasts, the Lord said to me, this is what I felt the Lord say, if you fast, I'm going to use you to heal this young boy and so I fasted and I'm praying and I came to Pastor Sutherland and I said to him God told me that at the end of this fast your son is going to get healed I'm just asking can I come to your house Thursday afternoon and come pray for him he said praise the Lord come on I came there that day I spoke in faith I said sister your son is going to get healed it was no pride in my heart. There was not one ounce of pride. There was no pride, no pride. I was so humbled in that fast. I was broken. I was weeping. I just wanted to be a vessel for God. I listened to every faith tape that I had. And I went in there. And I prayed for that young man. For a half hour, nothing happened. He's gritting his teeth. He had this disability where you would grit his teeth and you would hear the sound of it. That's how disabled he was. Couldn't make any words. Just wore a, wore a diaper, 11 years old, and a crib all you know like this prayed for an hour prayed for an hour and a half nothing two hours after about the second hour pastor sutherland just put his hand on my shoulder and said brother thank you for coming it's time to go now what do you do after that do you tell yourself i'm going to fast more now i'm going to pray more now it's my fault 
You see, my friends, that was the beginning of a journey in my life where I began to realize, and it didn't take till I did two 10-day fasts within one month. I fasted 20 days back-to-back because of one child I was trying to get out of a wheelchair that I began to realize that the spiritual gifts are gifts. I have seen God use me in the miraculous at the most unspiritual times of my life. Not after fast. Usually after fast, I'm in the worst attitude I've ever been in in my whole life. And all I want to do is eat, and I'm very easily agitated. We were playing volleyball. Some of you were there. The ball, I spiked the ball. The young man's hand that was fractured from a previous injury gets refractured. You remember that? You were there. We stopped the game. I feel embarrassed. I just hurt the kid. But what does God say to me? Just a little gentle whisper. Pray for him. Pray for him. And, you know, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm the one that hurt him. But I'm like, brother, if I hurt you, maybe I can heal you. You know, let's pray for you. And this big, bold pastor, you know, me, what do I do? I get this real shy prayer, just kind of place my hand on his shoulder. I don't even want to touch his hand. You can see it's swelling. You can see he's just an immense amount of pain. And you can tell he's not a kid that's going to fake pain like that. I mean, this kid is in a lot of pain. So I just place my hand on his shoulder. And I just say, Jesus, heal him. We ask for your healing right now. And then instantly he says, oh, I felt that. Oh, I felt that. Did you feel that? I'm like, what? What did you feel? He said, man, I feel like fire going up and down my wrist right now. And then, like, my faith kicks in. Shikaboomba. No, I'm kidding. But, I mean, you know, I get a little excited. I'm like, Jesus. Oh, yes, Lord. I always knew you could do it. You see, it's just, that's how it works. and, And you might say, well, Joe, that's just for you. You don't have enough faith. Listen to me. I have been in some of the greatest healing meetings of the ministry. Do you ever? Benny Hinn. I've watched people roll into Benny Hinn's meeting and roll right out in a wheelchair. I've watched Carlos and Nicandia and the whole breakthrough community pray for everybody in wheelchairs for three straight days and not one of them get out. I've watched Dave, I've been to probably, David Hogan is, is one of the most radical healing evangelists you'll ever meet. Uh, you know, uh, Vanessa will tell you, I mean, raised over 30 people from the dead personally in Mexico. I've been to probably over 20 of his meetings and I've never seen the blind see. I've never seen the death here. I've never seen the lame walk. And I've never seen anything that I never saw, not in my own ministry. Just, you know, people, I came in with pain. The pain is gone. Or something God has healed. He's recovered a sickness. Or just something like what I'm talking I've just never seen it. My friends, what? why? Is God playing games with us? No, the bottom line is they're gifts. Now, do you believe God for a gift every time you pray? Yes. At the end of the day, are you going to say it was God's fault? Like, no, God didn't will this person to be saved? No. God wants them to be saved. We still need to have faith. We still need to get in God's will. We need to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, it's a gift. I don't become better at using the gift by working spiritually to get that gift. I don't do spiritual push-ups and like, okay, rababa. Rababa, okay, it's like trying to start up the engine. And it's like, okay, be healed. Rababa, rab, okay, now the engine is running. Be healed, you know. Come on. I have felt the Holy Ghost on me when every time I was on these fasts and I was praying for sick people. I felt the Holy Ghost all over me, fire shooting up in my bones, all that, and nobody gets healed. The times that I've seen people get healed, it's just out of obedience, and it's like, boom, they get healed. Now, sometimes you feel it, but I'm just saying, what do we do? We become faithful to pray for everybody at all times, speaking the word. We don't become discouraged. 
and we don't make it out to be something. Well, I fasted 40 days and I got this. Okay, so if you fasted 40 days, when will happen if we fast 100 days? I bet you we can empty out a hospital. We fasted a year. A year. I'm going on a year fast. And you always got to do that with somebody when they talk about their fast. I'm going on a 20-day fast. Wow. You always got to give them that reaction because that's what they're looking for. You know what I'm saying? I'm going on a long fast. Wow. That's what you got to tell somebody. So next time somebody walks up to you, I'm going to fast for the next 21 days. Wow. You're amazing. You... You're incredible. I'm impressed. I'm already impressed. Just you saying it impressed me. You know what I'm saying? That, that's how I look at those things now. Because you know what? I, I've, I've watched people go on, you know, 21. I, I went to the school of urban missions. Man, they fasted and they prayed in Oakland. And we expected thousands to show up. There's like a few hundred and a few people get healed. It's like, what do you do at the end of the day? Do you say we're all losers and God doesn't love us? No, you just say it's a gift and we're going to keep asking God for the gift. And you know what? God can do the gift with me eating a hamburger just as easy as he can give me the gift of fasting. Where does it ever say that you have to fast to see all these things? And you might say, well, well, pastor, it says without prayer and fasting, these come out. My friends, you need to learn what New Testament variants are. Understand why that's not in your NIV. It's not even original to the context. That's not an original part of our verse. That might blow somebody's mind right now and be too much for you to handle. But it's always prayer. That's all it is. And if, and if prayer marked with fasting was such the trend of the New Testament church for miracles, then why didn't Paul begin to go on a 50-day fast for, for Titus with his stomach problem? Why didn't, why didn't Paul say, I'm fasting five days for you right now that you can get healed from your stomach problem? He just says, take a little wine. He says, have a little wine cooler, man. Have a daiquiri. You'll be okay. Take a little nip-nip you know, before you go to bed, a little NyQuil. Never hurt anybody. Come on. Because somehow we get this idea, like if I fast more, and if I pray more, I'm going to do more. It's faith, and it's prayer, and it's God's gift. There it is. Those of you who want to talk about that variant, faith and uh, prayer and fasting, give me a call or uh, online. We'll talk about it. You'll love that. That will really mess your theology up in a good way. Uh, Lesson number seven. Now, is it wrong to fast? No, fast. But why are you fasting? Not so you change God, so you change. Can, can fasting at the end of the day result in you doing more for God? Sure it can. But so can you going for a walk, eating a hamburger, loving Jesus can result more in doing for God. Because it's just faith, obedience, prayer, the Word of God. It's a gift. Are you with me? Well, how come Paul had people sick in his ministry? How come people died? How come David Hogan wears glasses? Why does Smith Wigglesworth Wiggles have uh, you know, kidney stones passing through him while he's praying for people to be healed? Why, you know, why does Reinhard Bonnke look the way he does? You know, Come on, somebody heal him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, just why? Why are things the way that they are? What do you do with that? You know, why is Steve Hill right now dying of cancer? Man, we've got to pray that he gets healed. Because they're gifts and everybody's going to die one day. And just it's, it's not a mystery in the sense where, oh, I don't know, brother, if God wants to do it. No, pray, believe he does it, and then move on. Just know they're gifts. Amen? Bitterness is a disease only cured by forgiveness. Lesson 7. Lesson 7. Ephesians 4.31. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. People in ministry will hurt you. I've been hurt so many times and bitter towards the people that have hurt me. You will find that bitterness starts off as a little seed. And Griselda can just tell you about this. Because even Griselda put in a little check and she told me my advice back about this situation. Because it first starts off with, why did they do that to me? And then if you're like me, you'll ask like 20 people, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Why would somebody do that? Why would they do that? Why do you think they would do that? And you start talking about it. And then what happens is then that record starts to play over in your mind. Over in your mind. And then what begins to happen is, how could they do that? You start to get angry with them. How could they do that? Do they not know who I am? Do they not know what I've done for them? Do they not know that I could put them on my knee right now? Come on up. Come on. Let me take it out on you and just give them a little spiritual spanking. Yeah, but you know what? God is testing our hearts. And when people hurt us, we're taking on the suffering of Christ. Think about what they did to Jesus. Did Jesus get bitter at them? No, because what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, forgiveness is the only cure of bitterness. I'll give you a situation right now. I'll try to keep it away from Chicago Metro Praise so people don't make, you know, assumptions of these people. But I remember there was a young man that came off the streets. His name was Abraham. He had worked at the gym that I attended. He came to the Lord. We found out he was on drugs. He needed a place to stay, so he came and stayed with me. I took in over 30 homeless people and, and people like that in that time. I was in the ministry there. And uh, Abraham comes in, and then I had this intern with me from Illinois, and his name was Billy. And Billy was a great guy. He really, you know, loved the ministry. He was a good guy. He kind of looked up to me a lot. You know, he was just a young man. We had a good time together. Well, Abraham kind of had this manipulating spirit about him. So he began to like not like our discipleship. He didn't like I had a curfew and I made him stay with me. You know, he kind of wanted to just use my house like a, you know, like a friend's house and couch surf. And he didn't really want to be in a discipleship program. And so I would leave these guys alone and go out and do ministry. And it would be Billy and Abraham. And eventually Abraham manipulated Billy into believing that I was a cult leader. Okay. Now, this was the summer before my staff came down from North Central and began to work with me. So at this point, the church was only about six months old. It was during the summer. I had no other staff. We only had about four people in the church. And now Billy is convinced, and he knew me from my friend's ministry. Like, he knows I'm not a cult leader. But now Billy becomes convinced that I am a cult leader. Lauren, can you relate to this? We'll just leave it at that. Not anything against Lauren, but Lauren's heard some crazy stories about us from others. Anyways, but we're not going to talk about Chicago examples. We want to put people's names out there or just whatever. So, Billy, so it wasn't my first time. It wasn't my first rodeo. So, Billy and Abraham now think I'm a cult leader. So, we didn't have a lot of people coming to our church, but what did we have? We had a lot of people that we were ministering to in their homes in the projects. So we would show up, knock at somebody's house. Hello, Miss Diane, how are you doing? Can we do Bible study with you today? Yeah, come on in. You know, we'd hang out with Miss Diane, you know, and just do Bible study and go all around. Hey, Miss Beverly, what's going on? And go in there, do Bible study with Miss Beverly and all of these people. You guys say Miss before their name in the South, you know. And so we would do all of these Bible studies. So Billy and Abraham now want to warn all of the people about me being a cult leader. They go to all of the Bible study homes. 
and say, I am a cult leader. I get a call like from Miss Diane. Hey, Pastor, you won't believe who just was at my house. I'm like, who was there? Oh, it was Billy and Abraham. What did they tell you? They told me, are you crazy? They told me, you'd be, you be lying. You'd be doing all. And then she told me the whole story. And I said, how many homes did they go to? They went to the whole neighborhood, the whole Iberville projects. They went to everybody. How many know at that point bitterness began to grow in my heart? And how did it start? Man, why did they do that? What were they thinking? Why? Then it was, how could they do that? How could they do that? Then it's like, don't they know what I did? Don't they know who I am? But you know what? I didn't receive victory and peace in that in my life until I gave them forgiveness. <sighs> Took a deep breath and said, okay, I forgive Billy. I forgive Abraham. And then you know what? Billy ended up coming back. Billy ended up having some mental problems, and I helped him through a very um, he had a very mental, a, a strong mental breakdown. I had to put him in a mental hospital. Some very crazy things happened in Billy's life. But I was one of his only true friends. And he ended up uh, going back home to be with his family and thanked me for being there for him. One of the hardest times of his life. And Abraham ended up repenting and calling me up uh, about a year later saying, man, you were a great pastor. I just want to let you know that I feel bad for doing that. I'll go over the rest of the, the lessons next week. I don't want to keep us. But you know what? Bitterness will always come to your life. No matter how much you think I'm above bitterness, you, no matter how much you think to yourself, people, people won't make me bitter. People will make you bitter. People will mess with you. And it will happen so subtly. I've seen it happen to the best. I, I've watched Brother Anthony have to fight bitterness. I've watched uh, Pastor Grogan have to fight. Pastor Grogan came, and I think that was here publicly, but it doesn't matter. He's always shared it. But 200 people left his church. 200, could you imagine 200 leaving? All of the relationships. He said some of them, he, he married them. He was there in their life. And they all left his church to start their own church. I was talking to Pastor Barry Hill about a church that some of you guys used to go to, so I won't name the name. But he said that brother left his church and went over here and started his own church, started his own school, did his own thing, and bad-mouthed him the entire time. How will you handle even a church split? Could you imagine, like, Metro Praise splitting? Could you imagine SU and Bible College splitting? Like, if right now one of the professors said, man, I'm going to start my own Bible college, and they split in two like that? I'm telling you, it's happened so many times in history. You don't think it can happen to you, but it does. People try crazy stuff, and they do it in the name of Jesus. Just like that woman that was at SUM in Oakland, suing the school, not leaving the dorms. I mean, it's crazy what people will do crazy my friends my brothers my sisters you have to guard your heart towards bitterness because if there's one thing that i have seen click out people in the ministry it's bitterness i've watched some of my friends quit ministry and stop doing it you know why because they got hurt so bad people treated them so wrong and they just don't want to mess with it anymore I mean, think about it. You know how your life was like before you got involved in ministry. You know, just dealing with family and friends. People hurt you. You get upset. You know, there's a lot of your friends right now and family that are all talking about each other. You know how it is. Imagine when you get into the leadership church world, it's like multiplied by 100, 200, depending on how many people you have in your church. You have now like 100 personalities that are all in your life and all different ways of life, all different ways of thinking, and people will hurt you. And you can, say, you can see the way some pastors think. They're like, man, I don't want to do this. 
I remember meeting one pastor, and he said, I love pastoring. I just didn't like the people. It's the truth. I've heard people say that. They say, man, I love pastoring. I just don't like the people. Yeah, that's what pastors have said. And some of you right now, you say, man, I couldn't even understand why a pastor could say that. You have to be in ministry for about five, six, seven, maybe ten years to understand a, a statement like that. When I look at a pastor like that, I don't approve of it, though, sister. I don't approve of it, but I look at it and I understand this pain. Because I know what it feels like to give your life to people. Your life. You, you, you give them everything you have. And then they'll just take it, spit on it, and then disrespect you and your family. Because it's never enough for them just to disrespect you. It's always you and your family. And, and you can always tell when people are out to bring you down because they always want to find three or four more people that believe the way they do. And they always say statements like this. Everybody feels this way. You can have somebody use it, leave a Dalpo's youth group. They'll go find two or three other youth that left, and then they'll make statements about Adolfo. And they'll say, everybody feels this way about Adolfo. We all think this way. Man, Adolfo's dumb. We all feel this way. And you'll get in your mind, man, does everybody feel that way? Man, I wonder who really feels that way. Does everybody around me feel that way? And then you'll start, especially in this day of technology, looking at Facebooks and MySpaces, and you'll start seeing these people manipulate. All of a sudden, you'll see these people delete you as their friend, but now they start making contacts to the people in your church. I've seen that happen. Here, I'm not their friend anymore. I can't look at their page. But people are now coming to me saying, man, this is what they're posting. This is now what they're saying. What do you do when it's your name? And if you think to yourself, that will not happen to me, I will tell you right now what Pastor Sutherland told me when I was sitting in your chair. He said, when people come to you hurt from another church and they say how bad that pastor is and how great you are, listen to me. If they've said it in front of you, they'll say it about you next. The next church they go to, they'll be saying the same thing. That is why I never take the side of the, uh, the disgruntled people. I always take the side of the pastor. I always do that. Some of you have learned that. When you've come to me and you've said different things about your pastor, we have reconciled it with your pastor. We have brought them into the conversation because we'll never just blindly take somebody's word against their pastor. We've even lost people in this church because we went back to the pastor that they were with and we reconciled it and that offended them because they wanted us to be their hero, but I wouldn't let them call that dude a zero. And by us going back to there, we lost them here. I'm telling you. You can't get convinced in your mind, oh, I'm so good. These people will never do that to me. No, they can't. They can't. But you cannot become bitter. Amen? Let's all stand up together. That was a good hour and a half message, a good class right there. Amen. You ready for part two in Romans? Amen. How many are going to make sure this stage is ready next time I come up to preach? Amen. About five of you guys. I want on charge so there's nobody. Rick, we'll put you in there. Rick, Davi, Berto, Jared, uh, uh, Ellie, Vanessa, Lilani, all of you who are involved. Adam, when he gets back. When we come up, there should just be like 50 little ants up here. Come on, putting all this here, putting all this here. Okay, you got it for pastor? Okay, good, because you never know when we're going to have a guest speaker here. Okay? Father, I thank you today for today's chapel. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you are changing our lives.